Last time we spoke about the learning process after the success, a very bloody one at that, of Operation Galvanic, the continued operations in New Guinea, Bungayville, and the naval battle of Cape St. George. Galvanic was an extremely bloody experiment, one that would teach the Allies bitter lessons of what to expect from the new phenomenon of island-hopping warfare against the Japanese. On Bougainville, Japanese roadblocks were crushed, and the Americans were extending their perimeters and advancing further inland. The IGN sought to help the IGA bolster Buka, and this led to an absolutely disastrous engagement against Captain Burke's destroyer squadron. Burke won a nearly flawless victory. Then over on New Guinea, after the seizure of Saddleburg, the Australians were now beginning a new offensive heading north along the eastern coast. The Australians were in hot pursuit of the fleeing Japanese. This episode is The Fall of Wario. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we begin, I just wanted to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, watch check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there I've just released part one on my series on Kanji Ishiwara, and how he began the Mukden incident. That episode, by the way, was initially on my Patreon account, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, where I have exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast over on the Patreon is about Yang Kyung Jung, the Korean man who allegedly fought for the Empire of Japan, the USSR, and Nazi Germany, all during World War II. But is his story true? Come find out. After their latest defeat at the Battle of Saddleburg, Lieutenant General Shigeru Katsugiri had his men begin a long retreat towards Medang. In response, General Wooten launched a two-pronged offensive aimed at Wario and Gusika. By the end of November, the capture of Gusika with ease effectively cut off the Japanese supply route to Wario. All that remained of the 20th Division in this area consisted of abandoned foxholes, entrenchments, ammunition, ration dumps, equipment, weapons, camps, medical aid posts, and graves. The advance continued on December the 1st. The 243rd's tanks were blasting through Horus's ears. The tanks blasted out the light opposition and soon the 243rd were occupying Horus's jaws, nose, and western ear. Meanwhile, the 215th attacked Nongora, but they were unable to defeat its defenders and had to pull back. A company of the 223rd smashed the last line of opposition south of Kunaku village, allowing for its seizure. Over at the Kalyong River, after an artillery bombardment, the 228th sent Lieutenant Rooks with a patrol to check out the lagoon, and their advance went without any opposition. Later in the afternoon, the Australian scouts pushed south around 600 yards and they began to hear the sounds of digging and chopping. They killed one Japanese soldier and wounded another, advancing further southwest to avoid what was assumed to be an enemy position. 
Towards dusk, a strong Japanese patrol ran into them, causing a small firefight. Lieutenant Rook had his men dig in for the night, while he climbed up a tree to observe the Japanese northeast of them. Lieutenant Rook then sent two volunteers, Privates Hooden and Weddle, to try and slip back to the battalion HQ to get some help, but both men would be killed trying to get out. At 8pm, Lieutenant Rook's patrol snuck out under the cover of rain and darkness to dig in closer to the Kalung. On December the 2nd, while the 2 and 43rd consolidated all of the Horus, they also began advancing towards the lakes, seeing some slight opposition. Then some of the tanks were attacked by Japanese 75mm guns from atop some high ground to the north of a lake at around 200 yards. The 2 and 15th would find Nagoro abandoned, and on the 2nd they seized what was once the 79th Regiment's HQ. At Kanko, the patrols of the 2 and 23rd would find the Japanese held a formidable position along a ridge near Peak Hill. At 8.30am, the Japanese began firing machine guns upon the Kanko area, only to be replied with Australian motor and artillery fire. At dusk, the Japanese suddenly charged using bombs made of gelignite that caused large blasts, but did little damage. The Japanese charge had surprised the forward Australian units, who pulled back. Thus, the Japanese were able to seize some ground north of Kanko. It was a serious situation, so the Australians decided to launch a night attack in response. The leading platoons lost several men while charging the Japanese, throwing grenades and explosives at them. The men of the 80th Regiment, however, held their ground and repelled the Australian assault, inflicting heavy casualties upon them. For the past two days, Brigadier Edgar's three battalions had been receiving training from AIF battalions about jungle fighting. Wooten then decided to attach AIF-experienced jungle fighting units to Edgar's battalions in an advisory role. Now the 20th, 24th, and 26th Brigades would each supply the 29th, 46th, 37th, 52nd, and 22nd Battalions with teams consisting of three officers, nine NCOs, nine privates, all capable of leading sections. These men would be advancing up the coast towards Fortification Point, with the 20th Brigade held back in reserve. To support this advance, a new beachhead was required at the mouth of the Kalung River to supply them by sea. Men went to work removing all the underwater and hardwood obstacles so a bridge could be built over the Kaolung to allow the tanks and jeeps to cross it. Edgar sent the 22nd Battalion on the 3rd to capture some high ground north and west of Gusica to secure the new beachhead. At 10.15am, Captain McFadden, Guild, and Martin led companies across the Kaolung River to assault some features held by the Japanese. They were held back by heavy machine gun fire, and they quickly called in artillery support that blasted the Japanese positions until 12.45pm. After that, the companies continued their attack, but without success. Then Guild's company seized a knoll around a mile northwest of Gusica, while Martin's company pushed frontally, and McFadden's formed a circle around the Japanese. By 5pm, the companies and their artillery managed to dislodge the Japanese, allowing the 22nd Battalion to establish their new bridgehead. However, the following day for the 22nd Battalion would not be an idle one. A mixed force consisting of the 238th Battalion, 33rd Independent Engineer Regiment, and 2nd Battalion, 26th Field Artillery, led by Major Tashiro, had orders stating, The force, while avoiding any decisive engagement, will carry out successive resistance to try and delay enemy advance. The 22nd Battalion had fought hard to clear the enemy position south of the lagoon but their successes were very few. Patrols would soon discover the enemy had dug in near a creek halfway from the Kaolong to the lagoon. At 12pm, one of McFadden's platoons found a minefield along a track before being attacked. 
McFadden requested artillery support, but it failed to hit the mark. Lieutenant Holdsworth, leading Platoon 5, found themselves fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat with some Japanese near the same track. Soon, multiple platoons converged into the area, forming an incoherent skirmish, while the Japanese enjoyed well-established dug-in positions to face off against the multiple Australian groups. Because of the disorganization, none of the Australian units managed to penetrate the Japanese positions. Over along the track to Wario, Brigadier Porter worried his 243rd Battalion was too worn and torn, so he ordered two companies of the 2 and 32nd, led by Colonel Scott, to head up to bolster their strength. By the 3rd of December, Colonel Scott's men began arriving to cover the 2 and 43rd, who were engaged in battle with multiple disabled tanks. By midday, the Japanese could no longer withstand the Australian attacks, and they were forced to pull back about 100 yards. Now, Colonel Scott took command over the lakes area, deploying his men and those of the 2 and 43rd up the main track halfway between the lakes and Christmas Hills. Back at Kanko, the 2 and 23rd Battalion were clinging on to their unfavorable position, being battered by the Japanese all the while. They were suffering from a lack of supplies, which were painstakingly being brought to them all the way from Palanco by men of the 2 and 24th Battalion. Kanko was seeing a firing duel involving numerous Japanese snipers, prompting Brigadier Whitehead to reinforce the position with Captain Denny's company of the 2 and 24th. On the 4th, Colonel Scott resumed his attack against the lakes area with both his 2 and 32nd and 2 and 43rd companies becoming... Exhausted and called of semi-sick personnel. Beginning at 7 a.m., the 4th and 24th batteries bombarded the Japanese positions along the track. An hour later, this was followed up by 3-inch motors. The Australian companies advanced parallel to the track over some very rough terrain. Some managed to get 800 yards behind the Japanese, where they were beginning to dig in. Despite being cut off, the Japanese continued to resist until the cover of night allowed them to withdraw. To the west, the 2 and 15th advanced north against Christmas Hills, but the terrain was so bad they eventually had to pull back to Nangora. At Kanko, the 2 and 23rd discovered that elements of the 80th Regiment had hooked around their rear during the night they were most likely trying to cut off their communications. Whitehead ordered the 2 and 24th Company to clear the track. The 2 and 24th Company advanced cautiously, going 75 yards south of the 2 and 23rd's position near the main track. They began to dig in as patrols fanned out who quickly found the enemy occupying a track between Kanko and the 2 and 23rd. They left the enemy unmolested for the moment, as other patrols were sent to cut the Wario Kanko track near Peak Hill linking up with the 2 and 23rd. The next day, with enough supplies carried forward, Whitehead then sent the rest of the 2 and 24th to reinforce the flanking maneuver going west of the track between Kanko and Peak Hill. Colonel Scott had his 2 and 43rd and 2 and 32nd advance towards Christmas Hills, who only found dead men of the 79th and 80th Regiment, as they had pulled out during the night. The men quickly dug in, as some men were sent forward to try and outflank the Japanese, who were just 50 yards or so behind their new positions. The Australians found the Japanese had dug in on another ridge close to the track. On that same day, the bridge over the Kaolong was finally finished, allowing the 4th Brigade to advance to Fortification Point with Lieutenant Colonel Kenneth Cusworth's 29th 46 taking the vanguard. With three Matildas in the front, the vanguard advanced at a good pace through sporadic Japanese fire. At 10 a.m., the leading tank was disabled by a landmine south of a creek, with its tracks blown right off. The other two tanks were unable to cross the creek without engineering aid, leaving the vanguard force to advance unsupported. 
Several abandoned positions were passed before they ran into significant enemy fire. Cusworth's men were held up at a line of the first creek where the terrain turned into a large kunai field, then jungle. By the afternoon, the tanks were repaired and helped cross the creek, successfully brushing aside the enemy resistance, allowing the Australians to advance halfway to the lagoon. But the 2 and 38th Regiment's companies regrouped and began attacking the advancing columns using sniper fire. This eventually caused Cusworth to order his men to pull back 60 yards to dig in near the creek. Though the tanks were essential at pushing away the enemy, they also were causing significant delays as they continued to run into tank ditches and mines. On December the 6th, Cusworth resumed his advance along two tracks leading to the inland side of the lagoon. Woodpecker and light machine guns pelted the Australian columns, inflicting heavy casualties. Over on the left track, the Australians fought a Japanese position upon Bald Hill, near the northern end of the lagoon. The leading platoons had to charge through artillery and machine gun posts, but they managed to dislodge the Japanese, who were hastily fleeing. The Japanese fought like lions, but there was little they could do against superior artillery and tank-supported infantry. The best the Japanese could hope for was to continuously fight delaying actions while trying to avoid decisive engagements. General Katagiri lacked manpower, supplies, and even physical strength to fight the advancing Australians off. His units in the mountain and the coastal areas were essentially cut off from the front lines. They were relying heavily on submarines and barges to move the meager supplies that came from the sea, and all of these, of course, were at the mercy of Allied PT boat patrols. Overland, the Japanese were failing to recruit native carriers because the Allies were extremely successful at bringing them to their side. Katagiri had no choice, so he ordered a gradual withdrawal from Oreo, lest it become a massacre. The 79th Regiment began pulling out towards Lacona to reinforce the coastal area. Colonel Scott ordered an artillery bombardment to kick off on December the 6th before sending his men to assault the Christmas Hills. His men were able to easily seize the eastern slope near the top but now they faced Japanese defensive lines on the western slopes less than 100 yards away. Colonel Hayashida received orders to abandon the positions during the night, which, to be honest, was becoming a bit of a routine for the Japanese. Scott's men would find them abandoned the next morning. Meanwhile, the 2 and 23rd discovered the enemy in front of them had likewise pulled out during the night. The 2 and 24th began cutting the track between the Kwanko Kwatikinko and Kwanko Wario areas. During the afternoon, the 2 and 23rd and the 2 and 24th coordinated an assault to take Peak Hill. The 2 and 23rd performed a diversionary attack at 5 p.m. using 25-pounders as the 2 and 24th stormed Peak Hill's western slopes. By 6.45 p.m., the 2 and 24th were digging in on the western slopes, and when darkness fell, the 80th Regiment began to withdraw from Peak Hill, allowing the Australians to seize the feature entirely by the morning. At this point, the 2 and 23rd passed through the 2 and 24th's position to hit the last Japanese defensive position located 600 yards away from Morio. Along the way, the 2 and 24th discovered that Kwatinko was still held strongly by the enemy. The village still had at least four machine gun posts and mortars. The Japanese were only performing delaying actions as by December the 8th, the mountain area was finally abandoned altogether. The 2 and 24th occupied Kwatinko and the 2 and 23rd Wario quickly hoisting the Australian flag on the high ridge in the area. The fighting had cost the Japanese 451 deaths, with one captured. For the Australians, they had suffered 47 deaths, with 322 wounded. 
Knowing full well the Japanese were just going to take up more defensive positions, the 2 and 24th were ordered to pursue them as quickly as possible towards Bezulo and east of the Christmas Hills area. The acting Japanese rearguard, units of the 2nd Battalion 79th Regiment, took up a position at a 2,200 feature ambushing the Australians at every point possible. The Japanese rearguard would perform a delaying action against the 2 and 24th and the 2 and 32nd Battalions until December the 12th gradually pushing northwards. Their efforts earned them severe losses, but also valuable time for Katagiri to pull the forces back and to assemble new positions. On December the 7th, Cusworth's men would be held up by heavy fire coming out of an enemy position halfway between the lagoon and the Tunum River. Cusworth's men had advanced far past their tank support now, who were continuously being bogged down by mines and tank ditches. Regardless, the Australians still enjoyed superior artillery support and continued their pursuit of the Japanese until they reached the Tunum River by nightfall, and then they dug in. The next morning, Cusworth ordered his forces to cross the river, but the 2 and 38th Regiment had companies take up positions to hit them as they did. Well-concealed woodpecker guns unleashed absolute havoc from the jungles upon the advancing Australians, causing heavy casualties. The Japanese were desperate to delay the advance as much as they could to give their men a fighting chance to withdraw. Sniper fire and woodpeckers were all that they could toss back, but the Australians' artillery was able to pinpoint and annihilate their position systematically. Along the Australian left flank, the 37th 52nd were fighting their way towards Tunam, with one company managing to get across the river against fierce resistance. During the night, the Tunam defenders pulled out, allowing Cusworth to advance towards the mouth of the Tunam by November the 9th. The next day saw the 37th 52nd in a very dangerous position. They were under heavy fire, including artillery, and it was likely the Japanese would perform a hook to cut them off. Brigadier Edgar decided to toss his 22nd Battalion into the center line. The 22nd Battalion advanced to a creek junction and unleashed a large motor bombardment, and upon advancing further, only found dead Japanese. Along the rest of the advancing line, the men were facing less and less resistance, as most of the 79th Regiment were nearing Lacona. Cusworth's men were accompanied by the 29th 46th and some tanks advancing further, who reached the Soe River by 1.40 p.m. With heavy artillery and tank support, they continued on till 3 p.m., when they found Kalinga recently abandoned. The Engineer's Special Brigade amphibious scouts rolled up to the Kalinga area and went to work forming a new beachhead. This led to a new group constituting of AASC, medical and ESB detachments being brought over by landing crafts who constructed jeep tracks to help the infantry come over and alleviate native carriers. The Australians did not rest, however. The next day saw them continue their advance, with one company of the 22nd crossing the Soe River before digging in for the night. On December the 12th, the rest of the 22nd crossed the Soe River with their tank support dispersing meager Japanese resistance along the way. The 22nd advanced over numerous creeks where Japanese took up positions. By the 14th, the 22nd managed to force the Japanese back away from the 5th creek that they had come across. At this point, the remnants of the 238th Regiment withdrew to Lakona, joining a garrison there, while also sending 50 infantry towards the Masawang River to help Hayashida's rearguard. The 37th 52nd advanced on the left flank and they were meeting stiff resistance but the Japanese rearguard could do nothing against their artillery and motor bombardments. Now the 22nd were approaching a creek near Lacona, they began clashing with a growing garrison in the area. The Japanese had dug in, forming a strong position, but a company of the 22nd led by Howison 
hooked around a cliff trying to block the Japanese escape route. While this was going on, the 37th and 52nd were pushing back the rearguard forces towards the fringes of Cape Sibida. The 50 Japanese there found themselves surrounded because of Hausen's men, and they had no choice but to fight to the very last. Hausen's men from the cliff positions tossed grenades down upon them to a horrifying effect. At 5.30am on December the 16th, five Matilla tanks rolled in towards the Cape Sibida pocket, finding the doomed Japanese with their backs towards the sea. At a range of 150 yards, they began to open fire upon the Japanese, and within eight minutes reached the cliff where they mopped up the last men. After further investigation, it would turn out many Japanese had leapt off the cliffs around Cape Sibida rather than die to the enemy. For the next day, several stragglers were shot, including a few men who tried to swim out to sea heading for Sanga. 47 dead Japanese would be counted by the end of the 17th, though it was likely 70 or more. On the 17th, 14 more Japanese would be killed sheltering in some caves below Cape Sibida. It is theorized this was the area men had leapt to their deaths. It was a decisive day. The Japanese had fought fanatically, but they had lost Lakona, the pivot to their escape route. The next day, the 29th 46 advanced along the coast and crossed the Sanga River under a heavy artillery bombardment. The resistance from here on seemed only half-hearted, all the way until the Masawang River. Once at the Masawang, remnants of the 238th Regiment launched a counterattack, forcing the Australians to dig in for the day. It seems it was a last-ditch effort to delay the advance of the 4th Brigade, as both the 29th 46th and the 37th 52nd Battalions were able to reach the Masawang unopposed on the 18th. On the 18th, Katagiri received orders from Generals Imamura and Adachi to officially cancel further operations to take back the Finchafen area, and to withdraw towards Sio the very last key position on the west coast of the Bitaz Strait. For the new task at hand, Katagiri sent the 80th Regiment to occupy the Ago Konomi area, and to guard the coastal area to allow the rest of the division to withdraw towards Kalasa and Sio. The rearguard would be provided by Colonel Hayashida's 79th Regiment. The 19th brought an intense artillery barrage as Custworth's men were hitting Hayashida's main line. The Australians were met with a strong rain of fire and were unable to break through. Only the Matildas were able to make some progress, but they were quickly held back by a steep ravine. Over on the left flank, the 37-52nd crossed the Masawang River unopposed during the day, and they marched to the southern slopes of Fortification Hill by nightfall. This action forced Hayashida to withdraw during the night, the unpleasant routine him and his men had been enduring for days at this point. Facing no further resistance, the 29th 46th and 37-52nd battalions occupied Fortification Hill. The 4th Brigade had suffered 65 deaths and 146 wounded during their pursuit. For the Japanese, it was a staggering 420 deaths, 6 prisoners, and another 136 bodies would be found later on, having died of disease, malnutrition, and suicide. However, that is it for New Guinea, as now we need to move over to the boys on Bougainville. The last time we were talking about Bougainville, General Geiger had expanded his perimeter. The army troops on the left flank had reached their final inland line back on November the 25th. The line was adjusted at this point. In the front were the 21st Marines, taking up various positions on some high grounds, though a lot of the terrain was quite swampy. Artillery units were moved forward into better positions to support the front line positions. Every avenue of approach to the defensive perimeter was covered in length. 
Meanwhile, daily patrols from platoon to company strength fanned out of the perimeter, scouring the area for Japanese outposts to the east and north. They would find countless abandoned outposts. An order was issued on November the 28th that no further movements were to be carried out until December. The defensive line was now anchored in the north by Hill 1000 and extended southward paralleling the Torokino River to Hills 600 and 500. This denied the Japanese access to any high ground that would allow them to use artillery against the airfields and beachhead. To protect their general advance from any Japanese surprise attacks against the right flank, General Geiger planned to launch a raid against the village of Korari to the south. Geiger selected the 1st Parachute Battalion of Major Richard Fagan, reinforced with M Company of the 3rd Raiders. Their task was to launch a surprise attack against a Japanese position near Karari, blowing up any supply dumps they found to disrupt communications and harass the enemy as far into the interior as the East-West Trail. A landing reconnaissance was carried out on November the 27th, reporting no enemy anywhere near the target area. However, these reports were unfortunately quite wrong. The paratroopers got aboard some LCMs and LCVPs at 4am on the 29th, and they would find themselves tossed nearly in the center of a Japanese supply dump. Major Fagan had estimated they would be opposed by at least 1,200 Japanese, most likely the Japanese 6th Transport Regiment and elements of the 23rd Infantry Regiment. Luckily for Fagan's men, the Japanese were just as surprised as them. Fagan's men quickly overran the dump and established a perimeter extending 200 yards inland. The Japanese then responded by tossing motor, machine gun, and rifle fire at the Marine beachhead. Artillery from Torikina began to help the Marines as they were met with a series of enemy charges throughout the night. The second landing party landed further south to meet up with the main party, but in the process they would suffer 13 casualties. Fagan then sent word to HQ that things were getting really hot, they needed to pull out quickly. He estimated 1,200 Japanese would be storming his beachhead at any moment. Geiger, fearing his men's annihilation, quickly formed a rescue operation, though communications had broke with Fagan. The Japanese continued to toss attacks at the beachhead, but they were kept at bay by gunfire from the 155mm guns of the 3rd Defense Battalion. Meanwhile, the landing craft used to get the paratroopers over there were sent to rescue them, but they were hindered by Japanese artillery. This prompted Geiger to send an LCI gunboat and destroyers Fulham, Loudner, and Landstone which had just come back from convoy duties. During the night, the Japanese began to surround the beachhead, firing into the perimeter. The 155mm continued to offer a shield for the Marines, barely managing to keep the Japanese pinned down. The paratroopers were running out of ammunition when just in the nick of time, the boats arrived to the scene, and all the boys were picked up by 8.40pm. In the end, the raid was a complete failure. The Americans suffered 15 deaths, 99 wounded, and 7 were missing out of a force of 614 that went over. They estimated they had caused around 291 casualties upon the enemy. But there was no real way to gauge this. Nearly all of the damage dealt to the enemy was done via artillery and naval bombardment, pretty much making the raid a complete waste of time. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. 
Over there, I've just released episode 1 on my series on Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident and the author of The Final War Theory. That episode used to be an exclusive on my Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel, where you can find more exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast over there is on Yang Kyung Jong, the supposed Korean man who fought for the Japanese Empire, the USSR, and Nazi Germany during World War II. But is his story true? Come find out. Over on Green Hell, the Japanese yet again found themselves on the run with the Australians biting at their heels. Wario had fallen. Now all that remained was Seo. But the Japanese would by no means make it a walk in the park for the Allies. Over on Bougainville, the Americans proved once in a while they could also mess up things. 